Hey, everybody. Just wanted to say a quick word before this week's podcast. As many of you might already know, I am very likely going to be fired in about two weeks, less than two weeks now, and I'll be fine. Don't worry about it. I'm not looking for charity or pity or anything like that. I'm mostly just letting you know because from then on, I'm going to be working on all of my crazy internet schemes full time. I want to just try writing full time, writing books, and then keeping all of these schemes going like the YouTube and this podcast. Basically, if I'm able to grow my income from all of these projects, that would be amazing. And I could very well just keep these things going as a full time pursuit. And if I'm not able to grow my income to that degree, that's perfectly fine too. But then, you know, it's not clear how well I would be able to keep all of these projects running. So basically no pressure at all. But if you have been thinking about financially contributing to what I'm doing and you are really keen to see me continue doing it, then now would be a really good time to register that support by becoming a recurring financial contributor to this project or community or whatever you want to call it. Cool. So as always, huge thanks to my patrons and everyone who is helping run all of this. And by the way, if you want to get in the Discord server, it's totally free. Uh, no obligations or anything like that. It's just where a bunch of people who are interested in the themes that I'm interested in hang out. And I check in there on a daily basis. So it's probably the easiest way to stay in touch with me if that's something you're interested in. If you want that, all you have to do is shoot me an email or uh, DM me on Twitter or get in touch however, really. All right. So now time for the podcast. I don't even know what you call this thing. Some people call it the Justin Murphy live stream. I just call it going on YouTube. But here we are today in just a few minutes. In fact, I'm going to be joined by a software engineer at Urbit. And I think we will kind of go over once I have him in here. I'll I'll introduce him a little bit more with him here. And I'll, I'll go over a little bit more about why I'm really interested in talking with Ted is his name, Ted Blackman, we're going to be speaking with. Um, but many of you will have heard of Urbit, even if you don't know exactly what it is. In fact, a lot of people don't really know what Urbit is. It's a fairly obscure startup, I guess you could call it. And yeah, they're what they make is not a kind of user-friendly app or something like that. And uh, it's, it's a little bit obscure. So a lot of people don't know what it is, but they want to know what it is in large part because the kind of founder of the of the Urbit Enterprise is named Curtis Yarvin, uh, who some of you might know of by his pseudonym, Mencius Moldbuck. So, um, yeah, uh, many, many of you will know that uh, Mencius Moldbuck is kind of known as a quite influential kind of neo-reactionary blogger. And this is just a person who, um, you know, uh, wrote a lot of blog posts over the course of a few years. I think this was back in around 2009 was, uh, if I recall correctly, kind of the, the heyday of, of the blogger Mencius Moldbug, uh, who happens to also be a very high level, uh, computer scientist, uh, with some really interesting and novel ideas about how you can basically run what we think of as the internet on a very different kind of networking model, basically. So it's a very, 
uh, it's it, I, from what I understand, and I, I'm no expert. That's why I wanted to talk with an expert. But from what I understand, it's 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 a pretty foundational kind of alternative to how you even conduct networking relative to the way that we currently do it. And yeah, so that's why it is a well known and a little controversial because Mentious Moldbug is a controversial blogger. And yeah, so a lot of people are really interested in understanding Urbit and what's really going on under the hood, but it's quite obscure. So um, it's quite mystified to a lot of people, including myself. I've read a fair bit about it in the past week, trying to kind of uh, brush up on it before I talked with Ted, but uh, hopefully he will. The whole, Hopefully the goal here is that uh, Ted will give us a really nice way to kind of pin down the basic logic, uh, the basic idea of what Urbit is and how it works. And then we'll talk a little bit about the political implications because, you know, a lot of people have a lot of strange ideas about, you know, well, we'll just leave it at that. A lot of people have a lot of strange ideas. And so we'll try to sort through, uh, we'll try to sort the wheat from the chaff in this, in this conversation. So I think that's, a, that's enough of an introduction for now. I see there's already some people throwing some shade already in the, in the chat, like someone saying it's just a glorified personal server. Uh, I think I've, I've heard of this critique. I think they addressed this in the FAQ. So, but that's good. That's something I can ask him. Hello, Ted. How you doing, man? Hello. Doing pretty well. Good, good. I love your sunny California backdrop there. It's pretty nice. <laughs> it is nice. I wish it was like that in England right now, but I can breathe today. Too. That's good. What's that? I can breathe today too. That's good. That's good. Air oh yeah, it's oh yeah, it's been on fire, right? Yep. Not fires in where you are, but nearby that you can smell it and everything, right? No, a couple hours away, but really big fires. Yeah, yeah that's so crazy. It's almost like humans aren't supposed to be in Silicon Valley. <laughs> yeah. No, seriously. I mean, when I was there, like, I just, oh, I just had this like strange uh, feeling. I was there for the first time actually this past year. Um, I had this strange feeling that um, there was something like satanic about it. Like, it's like too beautiful to be true. It's too sunny. It's too nice, and everyone wants to be there. Uh, but it's so expensive and there's all kinds of like uh, really ragingly crazy homeless people. And it just felt like this kind of like uh, like a, a, a some kind of like terrible, terrible biblical uh, conflict was on the horizon is like the feeling that I had when I was there. Well, um, sounds like maybe it could somebody could have been more hospitable to you. <laughs> Yeah. No, it just felt, I don't know, it just something about it felt very uncanny and it felt, it felt like, um, I don't know, like in a strange way, these fires that are taking, taking place, like it's, it's a total tragedy. I, I would, I wouldn't, um, I would never want to justify it in some kind of like cosmological narrative. Um, but I don't know when I was there, I just had like, you see all kinds of crazy things there, like with earthquakes, right. With, um, fires with, you know, like the, there are a lot of super volcanoes nearby, um, you know, it's like very beautiful, attractive place where where seemingly everybody wants to be. And yet in weird ways, it seems like uh, quite I don't know. It's like something about Mother Nature uh, wants to wreak vengeance on us. San Francisco is a strange place. <laughs> I've been here uh, since 2011. And um, I mean, I, I uh, yeah, I originally wanted to come out here. I mean. The direct reason was for work. I started a company out here, but um, the uh, but I'd wanted to come out here for a year or two before that. 
um, just because the culture is pretty interesting. And yeah, I have felt more at home here than I have in any other city. Oh, good. Uh, yeah. Nice. So there's something about the. There used to be more of this too before it got so expensive, but. Uh, you know, for a long time, it's been a sort of confluence of a lot of different kinds of people. And I remember, you know, when I first got here, I was hanging out with the guy I started the company with. There was another programmer uh, and then a painter and a sort of itinerant musician and some kind of spiritual guru guy. <laughs> and, you know, we were all hanging out. And uh, I think that 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 kind of hanging out is sort of emblematic of sort of the San Francisco that I came out here to be part of. Yeah, definitely. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely a lot of cool people out there. A lot of different people. Uh, I appreciated that even the short time I was there for sure. Well, Ted, thanks again for agreeing to meet with me. I think, as you know, I'm eager to have you on to learn more about Urbit. And as I'm sure you're aware, you know, Urbit is very interesting to a lot of people. There are a lot of people who are very curious about this name. I mean, even just the name, even just the name of the company is quite uh, intriguing. I think Urbit, what's an Urbit people think to themselves. They want to know what exactly is this Urbit thing they've heard about. And also I think in particular, because for whatever reason, uh, I think it has a lot of political connotations. And so we should, what I'm thinking, uh, well, actually we've just kind of gone over this a few minutes ago, you and I privately, I think what we'll do is uh, first, we'll just talk a little bit about what Urbit is and how it works. I think there's just it, it, it is a little confusing, really. And uh, a lot of people think of it or know of it as sort of notoriously confusing. So I think if we could try to just pin down what it is and give people a better sense of of what Urbit is, that would be an excellent accomplishment that people would find worthwhile, myself included. And then maybe after that, once we pin that down, if we can pin that down, uh, maybe that will give us a basis for maybe exploring a little bit some of the somewhat strange and uh, controversial political implications that that people associate with it, rightly or wrongly. Maybe you can help us kind of sort, sift through some of those things. Does that, sound, does that sound about right? Sure. All right. Awesome. So, I mean, do you have a kind of initial kind of elevator pitch? Uh, I'm sure you have some uh, experience or practice like trying to explain to people what Urban is. Do you want to kick us off with how, we, how you would describe it? Sure. Um, let's see. So... Well, Urbit is designed to build a network of personal servers. Um, And so a personal server is like a personal computer, except that you run it in such a way that it's always on. It can always listen for incoming requests. Um, This was actually the original dream of the Internet. That was the way the Internet was supposed to work, that you have a computer and other people can send you stuff. Um, uh, But what actually happened with the Internet was that it became largely centralized, right? So we, we, there are these these really big companies, Google, Facebook, et cetera. And most of the time, if, if I'm, so for example, right now, this video chat, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, my computer, my laptop is sending packets to Google and then Google is sending packets to you. Right. Uh, so it's, everything's going through this big centralized service. And that's true for most things, even things like, you know, chat messaging, which it's actually a little strange to think like, why do you need a centralized server? Right. Uh, and the, the real answer is that you don't. Um, but it's very difficult to build um, a sort of less centralized system that works peer to peer, given the way that computers work currently. Uh, and so so Urbit is a sort of re-envisioning of uh, kind of what is like a 
sort of abstract model of a computer and then an implementation of that abstract model in such a way that it should be simple enough to actually realize that initial dream of the internet. So okay. I can run a personal server, I can run an Urbit, um, and uh, that can talk directly to yours. Uh, and it's a end-to-end encrypted, peer-to-peer networking. Uh, and so uh, we see an internet that kind of layers over the existing one that's just a lot more secure, a lot more like relaxing, uh, and a lot less kind of controlled and moderated by any kind of centralizing influence. Right. So one thing that someone might ask right away, even just in response to your initial description, which in fact, I think someone in the chat has already asked, is how is it different than just people making their own personal servers, which you can already do without Urbit? It's basically not. Uh, I mean, okay. the it, it is a, just a personal server and, you know, our existing computers are Turing complete. They can run anything you want. Um, but... What's different is that what the what the Linux kernel achieves in around 15 million lines of code with another, I think, 20 million lines of code for Google Chrome, um, Urbit is about 30,000 lines of code. So it's you know, three or four orders of magnitude smaller. Um, it's also conceptually smaller, and that's the reason that we're able to get such smaller code size. Um, and... The reason we can do it so much smaller is that it's designed from the start to support what it actually does. And this is in stark contrast to our current computational system, which was not designed for doing anything like what it does. Okay. Uh, so we're using these operating systems that were that are all based on Unix, so for Windows, which is not exact, not based on Unix, but OS X, Linux, these are Unix operating systems. Right. And uh, Unix was designed around 1970. So it's, it's going to turn 50 soon. At the time that Unix was devised, uh, computers didn't talk to other computers. Not really. I think there was maybe ARPANET had gotten started or maybe it was getting started in a few years. But uh, even so, that was sort of a bizarre experiment that there were only a few computers involved with. Uh, the idea of a computer was this thing that sat in a room and that many people would connect to, uh, you know, they had this mainframe and so you'd have lots of people trying to connect to the same mainframe. So the whole idea of the operating systems that we use now, it was actually based on this idea that lots of people are sharing one computer and that computer doesn't talk to other computers. And this is actually reflected at many levels of the design of Unix, uh, from the permissioning system to the fact that networking just isn't part of the system and has to be bolted on. Right. Okay. Uh, there are also some you know, technical issues with the, um, the way that our internet protocols work. And uh, so because they basically weren't designed to run at the scale that they run at. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. So what you can do with Urbit, you can kind of piece together right now with existing technologies, but you're doing it in this kind of, um, you know, very inefficient way, piecing together layers of accumulated technologies that weren't really made to do that. Whereas Urbit is basically trying to kind of redesign the thing from the ground up in a way that's ideal for this kind of uh, radically decentralized networking. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. Uh, and. And yeah, there's, 
you said that there's a comment about isn't this just a glorified personal server or something like that um the there have been there's a whole graveyard of uh of projects coming before urbit that are trying to build they're trying to solve the same problem right that are trying to build a personal server and they've all failed um and the reason essentially is that uh you can, you can run a personal server, mm-hmm. but you don't want to. It's a it's a pain. Right. Uh, you have to be like a professional Linux system administrator in order to to do that, and it's it's a big job, and it's definitely not something that you know like my grandmother is going to do. It's not something right. that I'm going to do as a programmer. It's too much work. Right. Um, and like why? And so basically, when you try to run a server on the public internet. Uh, it's a deeply scary proposition. It's actually pretty tough to make sure that that doesn't get taken over by um, malicious code. Uh, okay. The public internet is actually it's sort of a scary place to try to run a piece of code. Lots of things are going to try to take you over very quickly. Um, and not just that, but these things require a lot of upkeep. You've got to you got to put in a lot of effort to make sure that you know you don't run out of you know, disk space and things like that. There are a lot of management tasks that you have to do to try to just keep a server running. Uh, and those management tasks, a lot of them just come from the sheer complexity of the system that's running. And it's basically just impossible to uh, take a system that, that that's that complex and make it simple to keep running. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that that's a pretty good first cut at the the basic idea and the, and the, and the basic motivation and how it departs from currently available technologies. I think now, if I understand correctly, Urbit currently is uh, a quite obscure sort of, it's in an obscure kind of testing mode, development mode, right? Where right now only hackers kind of play with it, but yeah. the... the and- and we don't tell people to go run it because it's it it does run it works it's not vaporware but it also is not um, is not mature and is not user friendly and is not fast and uh, I think there's another comment it's like oh if you wanted uh, just um, Amazon Web Services but uh, quirkier and with dumb names then Urbit is for you and yeah that that's about right for the moment <laughs> that's a good critique. Well, I actually, I have some notes, and one of the things I want to ask you a little later in the conversation is I wanted, I do want to ask you about the the weird names because uh, I'm I'm intrigued. I want to learn more about how the the whole yeah. like planet planet and star system. It's kind of interesting. Uh, sure. But let's get there. Let's get there when we get there. I think, um, right. So currently, it's it's really only for hackers. But my understanding is that the end the endpoint or the desired goal is to have this as a very accessible thing that anyone can can fire up quite easily, right? Yes. Right. And so is the what is the kind of ideal uh dream state uh for Urbit to or finally arrive in? Is it like any person can just buy a computer and load up like Urbit is kind of like the operating system? Like you just by default you open up your computer and you're in this world of Urbit and it's this totally decentralized networking model all kind of put together for you already. Is that the is that the end game? Yeah. Yeah, okay. very much. Interesting. Cool. So I think that makes much more sense. Like, I think when people think about it currently as this kind of uh, weird hacker way to uh, strangely piece together things that already exist in other weird hacker ways, uh, people are kind of like, well, what what's the point of this? Um, but I think when you understand that the end goal is a fu- or correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the end goal is a fundamentally different type of 
of interacting with the internet, a, a fundamentally different type of computing and networking that in its finally developed state will actually replace the what we all currently do. Yep. Okay. Okay. So that's that's good that that we pin that down a little bit. Now, could you maybe go a little bit deeper, maybe one notch deeper in helping us understand um like with the main technical idea or innovation of Urbit, like how exactly is it going to do this? Yeah. Um Let's see if I can exp- – there, there is actually a core piece of Urbit that makes it possible to do this. Um, it's a little bit it's, – it's very technical. So, you know, uh, stop me if I start speaking gibberish. But okay. The, um, so the – really the core of Urbit uh, is the, the way we think about what a computer is. Uh, and the way that we think about what a computer is in Urbit is as a, a function mathematical function. So that function takes you from the previous state of your computer, which includes all of your programs and all of your files uh, and, you know, the state of like what's on your screen potentially, but everything. So that's, that's one input to this function. And the other input to the function is an event. Something happens. Uh, so maybe a user pressed a key or maybe the computer received a request from someone over the network. So that's the other input. So you have this function that takes in two inputs, the, the state of your computer in, in its entirety uh, and some new event that happened. And then this function runs and takes you and it outputs another pair, which is the new state of the computer, uh, which is potentially you know, modified from the previous state. And then a list of effects that should be sent out to be performed, such as maybe like writing a character to the screen or sending a network request, a network response back out. Uh-huh. Um, and so, uh, Urbit is an implementation of that function, uh, and that function is called knock, and it's a, it's basically like a functional machine code. So it's a, it's just all these uh, trees of numbers that are that the computer understands to be a function, and so and so you have some tree that always gets evaluated to become some other tree, and uh, so that's every time your computer receives an event, it runs a function from tree to tree. Uh, and that determines the behavior of your computer. And you're saying that's what it currently does, or that's what it uniquely does in Urbit? That is what Urbit uniquely does. There's okay. actually nothing else that, that operates this way. Well, I mean, there are some sort of small pieces of other computational systems that run this way. Okay. Um, but uh, Urbit is the only thing that runs a whole computer this way. And so what is y- y- valuable about this way of doing it? Yeah. What's valuable about doing this, there, there are a few things, um, but uh, I think the, the overall um, the overall biggest benefit of it is that you're just standardizing the computational model. Um, so you're standardizing like what is a computation? How do you run a computation? Uh, you're standardizing that in this way that's uh, that's very clean and very tiny and doesn't ever have to be changed. Uh, so knock, which is this, this function um, that runs all of Urbit, uh, our version numbers go down in Urbit. We call it Kelvin versioning. So like it goes to absolute zero. Um, and so when the version numbers get to zero for any particular piece of the system, they're all versioned separately. But knock is currently at version four. 
And we just went from version five to version four. So we only have uh, you know, four more opportunities to, to change knock ever. That's strange. Why is that? Why does it go down towards zero? It's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's actually, there's another way of describing Urbit, which is that Urbit is sort of uh, that which is the result of uh, building a system with downward sloping version numbers. Okay. Um, but the, the reason is that we want it to become a standard, right? Okay. And so uh, when you have a standard, breaking the standard is very expensive hmm. um, and causes a lot of problems. And so uh, the most successful standards actually usually kind of congeal and become frozen. Uh, so we're trying to kind of uh, do that process of creating a standard and then also um, do it in such a way that, you know, hopefully we, we don't um, kind of linger forever and no one really knows whether this thing is done or not. And it's like there's a there's a measure there's a measurement of how done it is. That's interesting. So so zero will be the final orbit. Yeah. Yeah. And so eventually the whole operating system uh all the parts, all the, everything in kernel space, user space will continue to uh, turn over, uh, and ideally very fluidly, just by receiving a packet, which is how it works right now. Uh, so that part actually works works well already. Um, but the, um, uh, but yeah, the the components of the system itself, like the the sort of infrastructure part of the operating system, that will completely freeze at some point, and and never change again. It might take another 50 or 100 years for that to happen. Right. Okay, so that's that's really interesting. Were you in the middle of a thought? I'm sorry, I didn't want to cut you off. I was saying it might take 50 or 100, maybe 200 years, I mean, it, to for it to finish congealing for all the different parts of the operating system. Sure. This is a very long-term project. Uh, so, yeah, it doesn't work that well right now. Uh, but, you know, if you imagine all the sort of person hours that can be put into – uh, you know, one thirty thousand line piece of code uh, towards making that uh, kind of timeless and um, kind of like universally applicable uh, way of defining a computer. Um, it starts to look a lot better when you think of it that way. Um, right. Okay. So, Ted, one of the implications of Urbit that I, I think I'm somewhat familiar with, if, if I understand it correctly, is that in the Urbit model, individuals are kind of much more tightly bound to their to their computer. Is that right in terms of identity? Yes. So obviously in the current status quo, you can have a million different Twitter accounts, a million different Internet accounts of all different kinds, right? Um, but Urbit by design will would would significantly cut down on this uh, uh availability of anonymity is that right could you speak to that a little bit more yeah so in urbit you have a an address um which is like an ip address in a number of ways um but but different in a few significant ways so um personal servers uh, so if I run a personal server, um, and I do have one, it's called Ravnus Rickfer, which is – so Ravnus Rickfer is actually the address, and it's just a, a pronunciation scheme for a particular 32-bit number. So each 8-bit piece of that is one syllable, um, and this is a, a permanent identity for on the Urbit network. Uh, 
Uh, so it's it's both like a routing address so that other people, other computers in the Urbit network know how to send packets to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a an identifier, sort of like a handle. Um, and then it's also a cryptographic identity. And so that it's sort of the last part that's most interesting. Uh, I mean, something that people don't really know usually about the current internet is that an IP address, like an address on the you know routing table of the current internet, is not associated with any kind of cryptographic information. There's not like a key, a private key that owns that address. That's not how it works. Uh, encryption was sort of added in later, uh, whereas um, for Urbit, encryption and identity are built in from the very beginning, and so every uh, every address is owned by a person. And the way you own the address is uh, by owning the private key that controls that address. Okay. Um, and so it's a, it's a secret, you know, it's, so if you have the secret, if you know it, then it, you have cryptographic ownership of this address. Right. Uh, and you have to pay for it. it. It's, and this is how we're funding the company as well is by, um, by selling off blocks of addresses. Um, is that uh, what the, is that what the planet sales are? Uh, the star sales. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, um just clarifying that. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, and so, and I'll get into the, that terminology in a little bit, but, Great. um, but I guess, uh, so there, there, you need a few things in order to get some system like this to work, uh, where you actually have a, a, um, a real, like a real identity, um, real in the sense of cryptographically secure identity uh, on the internet. And one of the things you need is uh, you actually need some scarcity because, um, and you need it to cost some some money because otherwise you can do what's called a Sybil attack. And this actually happens all the time at several different layers of the current internet where uh, you can say, create a thousand new Twitter accounts for free. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, maybe each one of those has a private key, but if you can do it for free, then um, you can effectively become someone else whenever you want. Uh, and so there's nothing to to prevent you from, say, sending out lots of spam or other kind of abuses of the network. Right. Uh, whereas with Urbit, there's a fixed number. They're, they're 2 to the 32, so uh, 4.2 billion possible um, personal addresses. Oh really? Yeah. So they're thirty-two bits, and they're so, which means there are only there are only four billion of them. So not so every a, wait. So not everyone is allowed on the internet. <laughs> well, that's that's always the first thought that people have. Um, but it's really uh, each one of these might be like a family account. Okay. Right. Uh, and so, and the reason that we can say that is that so a full Urbit address is actually one hundred twenty-eight bits. It's just that the personal servers are limited to 32. So every under, so like if I have a, so Ravnus Rickford, for example, my, um, my Urbit address, um, there are actually also, there are another 4 billion, uh, addresses underneath that one. So like really that are in my sort of subnet. And those are, those are completely controlled by me. Those can't exit the way that, um, the way that the personal addresses can exit. And we'll talk about that in a bit, but basically I have this whole subnet that I can control that are all sort of, uh, sort of aspects of my identity, you know, like, uh, like everything's a, um, 
what is it in uh, Hinduism? Everything's an, an aspect of Brahma, okay. right? It, within the um, so within within my address, there are all these different. Oh, okay. Um, so one address can sponsor a lot of users. That's right. Yeah. So, so, and the idea is that that's for all the connected devices. So if I have, you know, a laptop, a phone, um, some other desktop, those will all be what are called moons underneath my planet. 32-bit address is a planet um, that has up to 4 billion moons underneath it. And it might seem like a lot, but uh, we're sort of expecting just, you never know if somebody is going to have a bunch of sort of internet of things, light bulbs or whatnot, that you're going to want to control, you know, your own personal botnet. Um, And uh, the, um, so, so yeah, so if you have a, a family that owns one of these addresses, then each, each person could have a moon underneath that totally feasible and how many moons are there allowed total well four billion per person so total is two to the 64 which is four billion times four billion so yeah right so so moon moons are not you know going to be very there's not going to be like an upward ceiling on moons that we're going to encounter in the human species anytime soon that's right right um and uh i mean yeah we'd have to go um (laughs) expand to some other planets physical planets um right interesting okay so so right so scarcity is imposed it's more it's costlier to have an identity on on the internet basically yeah and the idea is that that would significantly decrease uh all kinds of bad behaviors is that right yeah and it's not just the fact that there's a limited number it's also that it's um you actually want this to be a permanent identity for yourself, right? right? You want to, you want to sort of make a name for yourself and you know, be known as a reasonable person. Um, and, uh, so it's the kind of thing that you're going to want to hold on to and maintain a reputation for, as opposed to wanting to flip it. Right. So you would imagine kind of reputation systems being built on this yeah. on, the, on the public web. So, right. So log, log yeah, going onto websites, there would be, um, uh, kind of uh, cryptographically enshrined uh, reputation markers on various websites, likely. Yeah, uh, and we actually envision that happening at several different levels. Uh, it's not built into the system. This is something that will have to happen uh, or- organically by the network. That will have to be built organically by various people on the network. But the um, there are a few different levels that you might imagine that happening at. Um, and the lowest level is just at the packet routing level. Right. So let's say, um, I mean, you know, you're, you're a pretty shady looking fellow and let's say you buy a planet and, um, you immediately, uh, just send out, um, send out a spam, some sort of phishing scheme or something, Mm -hmm. uh, to 10,000 planets and you're just, just barraging everybody, um, with tons of network packets, uh, the star, which is a an infrastructure node, there are 65,000 infrastructure nodes called stars, and every planet at any given time is being routed to by one of those stars. The star notices that, that you're um, being an abusive spammer, it will stop routing packets to you. And it might also put you on, it might also notify other stars and say, okay, this address is, is a spammer. So if you get packets from them, just throw away the packets immediately so that it doesn't clog up the network. Now, is that a rule that's kind of programmed and enforced by Urbit centrally? No. So this is a rule that every node would have to uh, agree to individually. Okay. 
Right. So, and it's, so it's not a rule really. It's like, um, it's just a sort of consent They're not even a consensus. It's just, um, uh, it's just up to each star's discretion, whether or not they're going to continue to route packets to somebody. And basically it's, this is kind of a binary thing. It's like, you're either, it's, you're pretty much either a spammer or you're not, um, uh, so it's not something where there's going to be like complex social judgment. It's something that's going to happen probably completely automated, just based on some sort of you know, you know, rate limiting check. Like, oh, this, you know, this address is sending millions of packets all the time. But you're saying this would be this would emerge kind of organically by the different individuals on the network setting certain thresholds for what's acceptable. Yeah. Okay. Um, It'll probably emerge from so you know the network sort of building a piece of code that actually does this um, this sort of uh, filtering, um, and it's probably a good time to actually talk about the the network hierarchy and how okay. that works, routing okay. hierarchy. Um, you want to go into that? Yeah, please. All right. Um, so so I said there are these thirty-two bit addresses, and those are for um, so those are for personal servers. Right, so there are 4.2 billion total uh, available personal servers. Uh, and I've said it's a peer-to-peer network, so which it is. So it means that um, once I know where you are, if I'm a personal server, you're a personal server, I can send a message directly to you. Um, that message is signed by me cryptographically and encrypted by me in such a way that only you uh, can decode the message. Um, but in order for this to work, I actually have to know where you are, right? I have to know where to send this packet. Um, and so in order to know where you are, there are a couple of levels of uh, routing hierarchy. And so those levels are uh, stars. There are 65,000 stars. That number is from 2 to the 16 because each, each star is a 16-bit address. And then there are 8-bit addresses called galaxies. So there are 256 of those, two to the eight. Um, so the galaxies are the root nodes, which means that at any given time, everyone always knows where all the galaxies are. And by where they are, I mean what IP address they have. Remember, Urbit layers over the existing internet. So you don't need specialized you know, routing hardware. You don't have to like buy a special modem to run Urbit. It runs on top of what we've got right now. And the way it does that is by you know, layering on top of IP addresses. And so... Um, now, the reason we didn't use IP addresses is they have all the problems of the current internet, and they also uh, cycle very quickly. So, um, so this is part of why we need this routing hierarchy is because uh, where you are, that the answer to that question actually changes rapidly. Um, so, um, so in Urbit, what you're making permanent is who you are. Where you are can continue to change. Um, the uh, so in any case, I, I want to send a message to you. You know, we're both personal servers, planets, 32-bit addresses, but I don't know what IP address you have. So I can ask my star, which is in charge of routing packets for me. Uh, and if my star doesn't know where you are, then it'll ask uh, my galaxy, my star's galaxy. Um, and that galaxy will then ask your galaxy, uh, which will then ask your star. And your star knows where you are if you're on the network. Okay. And so then your star will send back the answer to the galaxy send back to my galaxy back down the, so up and down the hierarchy back to me and then okay. i have your IP address and then once i have your ip address i send messages directly to you they do not go through the hierarchy once 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 i know where you are it's direct okay but 
in order to know you know where to aim that packet, uh, we have to have this um, hierarchy. So you know, we say that it's a semi-decentralized network. The other term for this is a federated network. Uh, mm-hmm. These are both pretty standard. Um, federated network is a kind of standard networking term. Um, the uh, yeah. So then there's this question of like, all right, well, who are the stars and galaxies, and how does that work? Mm-hmm. Um, and th- those are the addresses that we sell uh, for money primarily. Um, and uh, the and they're all designed to be run by. Each one is supposed to be run by a different individual. Um, the galaxies or the stars or both? Galaxies and stars, yeah. And is, is because, it like they're more expensive the higher up they go? Yeah, um, because they also uh, – when we sell them, we also sell – so if, if, we sell a 16, if we sell a star, 16-bit address, um, there are 65,000 planets underneath that star. And so if we sell a star, we're selling sort of the, um, the ability to run that star – and then also the ability to sell the addresses that are underneath that star, that that the star would be responsible for routing for. Okay. So we're and, selling off a subnet, a whole block of addresses. And what happens if one of the people who owns a star or owns a galaxy is just like a terrible person who either is lazy or does nothing or can't maintain it, or is like a bad actor like uh, Kim Jong Un and uh, is going to like do kinds of malicious activity to its uh, to its property? Yeah. Well, how does that uh, work? <laughs> so it works through exit. Uh, and so we call it escape, actually, where the um, a planet, so a personal address, personal server, can always escape to a different star. So if, if, I'm, a, if I'm a planet and you're a star and you just start doing really weird, mean things to me, you know, just like maybe you aren't – maybe you're not routing my packets properly or maybe you're um, – Maybe I catch you lying about something, uh, or maybe you just have bad service quality. Yeah. Um, for any of, the, or maybe I just don't like you personally. You know, for any any reason at all, uh-huh. uh, I can I can go talk to some other star and say, hey, I'd like to move. Um, would you like to write my, route my packets instead? Uh, and there's generally a, a payment agreement there. We don't have the payment agreements in place because the scale isn't big enough, but. The idea is you'll pay some small amount of money, sort of like an ISP, like, like paying Comcast or something. Um, so you pay some small amount of money per month for the star to continue to route the packets. Um, and then uh, so, so basically I'll take my business elsewhere. So I, I can say, you know what, I'm not I am no longer under I'm no longer under you. You're no longer routing packets for me. I'm going to go to this other star um, where they won't treat me like dirt. Um, okay. And so. The idea is that you need enough uh, variety there. You need – this is why we have so many stars, right? Not just the galaxies. We have 65,000 stars. You got to imagine that out of those 65,000 different individuals, there's going to be one of them who isn't a total dirtbag. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, right. And so and really there will be several. Um, and actually we expect that – and so this is, this is where we're sort of – the idea is that when you're – Running a star, right? You're you're responsible for for routing the part of the network. Uh, you should also be able to make money off of that responsibility if you actually shoulder the responsibility properly. If you don't shoulder the responsibility properly, all of your customers will leave, go to other stars. Okay. Um, 
And this is true for galaxies as well. So the galaxies are the root nodes. There are 256 of those. And there, so there are 256 stars under each galaxy. And uh, the stars can also leave the galaxies. Um, Interesting. So, okay. you know, you might, you know, you could, you know, if you buy a galaxy and, and, and don't run it well, then you've just made a very bad investment. Okay. No, that's that's really useful. I, I understand much better now the 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 intergalactic metaphor. So it's like individuals are are nested in uh, this hierarchical structure that is somewhat reminiscent of our relationship to the to our galaxy. Yeah, I get that. Um, right. Okay. Okay. So that's. I mean, one can already kind of sense a little bit. Uh, listeners right now can probably sense a little bit of uh overlap i think i think between some of these ideas and uh what we might call mold buggy and uh politics in the sense that i mean what you were just saying about trying to design a system in which uh the failure modes for a particular authority can be solved by uh the governed units being able to move laterally to another kind of governing authority. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's the kind of thing. Yeah. You, you know, I don't know if that works in meat space. Right. I mean, I actually just moved uh, to this place um, and man, it was a pain. <laughs> it took me, <laughs> took me a few weeks and I'm still kind of tying up the loose ends with you know, the bank and my old landlord and whatnot. Right. Yeah. Moving is the worst. And I was just moving from one place in San Francisco to another. Right. You know, plus moving to some different country. Um, yeah. It's a huge pain in the ass. Definitely. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know if that works for uh, real world governments. Urban is urban is not a real world real world government. It's a sure. it's a um, it's a digital system, and um, and uh, it turns out that moving a server from one router to another logically um, uh, costs nothing. You just you just send a few packets around, and you know write a, write something to disk, and and you're done. Right. So, so, so there's no, yeah, there's much less reason to, there, there's much less friction for doing that in Urbit. I mean, the other thing that's, so I guess I feel like I should mention that uh, there's a pretty common misconception about Urbit that, that each sort of star will be its own social network um, or its own community. And that's actually really not the case. Uh, so we, we expect there to be sort of a network of social networks on Urbit. Um, and those are not going to be, they're not going to be sort of delineated along the network routing hierarchy lines at all. Just the way that, you know, I might have Verizon and you might have Comcast, but that doesn't affect like which Facebook groups we're in. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, so I guess that's, I feel like that's another common misconception that I'd like to kind of clear up. It's like it, it, this is a really low level hierarchy thing. Like the, the hierarchy is really just for low level packet networking um, and you know, it doesn't really affect the social dynamics directly. Right. When you say low level, that might confuse people. When you say low level, you mean very abstract in kind of the the engineering like that. Yeah. Won't, in this case, I, mean won't... Level, I mean, low level in the sense that machines care about it, but not people. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, you know, something else also that I, I was thinking about when we were talking about the anonymity question, I believe uh, it's kind of a misconception that um, on Urbit, 
it's like everyone is going to have to be locked there. Everyone is going to have their kind of identity locked to their computer and that it would be a, that it's necessarily going to be a major cramp on anonymity. My understanding is that that's actually a bit of a misnomer, right? Because you can actually have anonymous identities still, but they're just going to be yeah, tight, sure. they're going to be tightly locked to the to the to the computer. Is that right? Yeah, there are, there are kind of two answers to this. Uh, the first one isn't as good, but I'll say that one first. Um, so the, the the first not as good answer is um, that we, you know, I said earlier that the urban addresses are 128 bits, but I've actually only talked about 64 bits worth of that space. Okay. Right? So we talked about planets, which are 32 bits, and then moons, which are 64, which are under the planets. Those are the connected devices. So that leaves 64 bits of extra space uh, in the network. Um, or really 128 bits minus the 64. And the, um, so those are called planet, oh, sorry, those are called comets, those 128 bit addresses. And so those are kind of outside of the routing hierarchy. Um, and they're, um, they're anonymous. So th- they do require somebody to route for them, but, but you don't have to buy them. They're 128 bits, two to the 128 is such a huge number that that's effectively infinite. Uh, so there's so there's no cost for those addresses. And so if you want to use an ephemeral or anonymous address, um, you, you can use a comet. Um, it's not a very good answer for a number of reasons. Um, and the biggest reason is probably that a lot of things will probably just filter out comets because you don't want to have to deal with um, the Sybil attack issue. And so you just don't want to have to deal with spam that could come from anywhere. Right. Um, the... Uh, it's unclear whether we're going to keep comments, actually. Um, but the um, the better answer is really that um, uh, you can be pseudonymous on the network. So you have an urban identity, which is permanent, but that urban identity is not necessarily tied to your real world real world identity. Right. Um, and and there's nothing preventing you from having having multiple. So you might have you know if you're in some I don't know. If you're in some oppressive country, let's say, and you have um, you have one, um, you might have one uh, sort of public, publicly known urban address that's tied to your real identity, and then a, a pseudonymous one as well. Right, different, different address. It's possible. So, ironically, it's almost like urban would actually be better for people doing serious stuff under anonymous or under pseudonymous conditions. Like, you know, I think a lot of people who uh, get, uh, you know their panties in a bunch about this are like anonymous, I don't know, like Twitter figures and bloggers or whatever, people who have like these pseudonymous um, identities that they've cultivated and they've kind of invested in over time. You know, they do, they try to do serious writing or whatever, serious work under these pseudonyms. Urban would actually be better for them because they would actually be able to integrate their other accounts with their pseudonym in a more robust way, actually, probably. Is that fair? That's completely true. Yeah. yeah. No, there's, um, uh, I mean, we, we don't, we don't really design Urbit to be a cypherpunk system, but you can use it that way. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. It, it would work quite well for that. Yeah. Okay, cool. That's, that's, I think, an, uh, a misconception. It's not actually cracking down on, on, on responsible anonymity, but it would be cracking down on an anonymity that's used for, uh, bad behaviors. Yeah, well, it's really like, I mean, again, it's like bad network behaviors, right? Bad, bad, like, sort of, right? At a, at a very, like, again, at a sort of low level, like, are you are you abusing the network, like, at the machine level, right? Are you just like clogging right. up the tubes with packets, that sort of thing? Right, right, right. Um, yeah. 
Ted, could you speak a little to what are, what are kind of the the big wins from a kind of consumer or user experience? Like what what could people look forward to when Urban is developed at a certain stage uh, as like really attractive features? Sure. Uh, I think the the biggest kind of category of those is going to come from uh, the fact that we're removing a conflict of interest from the user interface. So through Urbit, let's say we just want to do some social networking, right? Like I want to send you some pictures of my boring vacation or whatever. Um, when I want to do that, you know, I'll send you those pictures. The, I'll, there's some user interface where I can send you those pictures. Uh, and then I'll send them to you and you'll look at them or you probably won't, but you could. And the, um, that interface that you're using when you look at those pictures, with Urbit, that interface is going to be something that um, there isn't like a corporation behind it. Right. I read about this. Okay. Um, some open source piece of software that, um, you know, somebody wrote and it wasn't too hard to write. And so it didn't take that much time. Somebody just kind of did it as a labor of love. And, um, and that interface will work directly for you. Right. Uh, That's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah. There's, there's, because nobody has to run some server and you know, running the servers takes a lot of work and a lot of work means it takes a lot of money. You got to pay system administrators and engineers. And, uh, you know, I mean, Facebook, for example, had to go and spend, I mean, it must be billions of dollars at this point, uh, on infrastructure, like technological development of their own infrastructure, mm. which is a little crazy. I mean, like they're really just kind of sending pictures around. Right. Uh, right. Of, so, but instead of, you know, everyone kind of shouldering the responsibility of like holding on to their own data, sending the packets to their friends, it's Facebook's central servers, centralized servers responsibility to do it for everyone, you know, over a billion people. So that's a, that's a big job trying to do all that and keep it all consistent, make sure you don't lose any data and make sure it's fast. Right? And that's right. a big, difficult job. And it's actually just a job that doesn't have to be done. And also, we have to currently log into all these different websites. Yeah, and, and that's, that, that's another issue. Uh, but I guess like the um, yeah, the overall kind of value proposition from a sort of far away, uh, more abstract level level is that you'll have a user interface that works directly for you that that doesn't have sort of mixed loyalties where it's sort of nominally providing something to you for free, but it's, it's actual purpose is, uh, you know, a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders of Facebook incorporated. Right. Right. Um, and the way that they maintain that fiduciary responsibility is by serving you ads and, uh, and gathering data from you. Um, so that other people can show you ads and the, uh, mm -hmm. When a user interface is doing that, you get all these little these little frictions. Like it's, you know, it's popping up ads at you. It's it's rearranging uh, your timeline. Uh, it'll it'll do things like, and overall, it'll try to get you to spend as much time and attention on that piece of software as it can. Right? I think more than more so than the like data privacy issues. I think it's the the real like user experience problem there is just that these things are deliberately addictive. You know, it's like, um, I don't know. It'd be like if you're, you know, you go to a restaurant and they're just like, you know, hiding cocaine in the food or something. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, 
and and they actually really are heavily engineered um, to be addictive. Actually, I used to um, uh, the company that I started when I first came out to San Francisco was we built um, user interface components for the Microsoft Connect, so you could like mm-hmm. you know control a computer by you know waving your hand around. It turns out that's kind of a lame way to control a computer, but. <laughs> Uh, but I went to a, a video gaming conference while I was doing that, and uh, I watched a talk about how how to, and it was it was even in the title of the talk. It was like how to make a game addictive. Yeah, and it talks about how you can you know do things like you have it be free to play, um, but then you have in game content that you have to pay for, and like how can you kind of structure? They, one of the things they mentioned was that uh, you want to use random uh, random rewards. Uh, right. Because if you just do the straight Pavlovian, um, like you know, do something good, get a pellet, right? Uh, or that that actually isn't as addictive as if it happens randomly, right? right. So you, you actually right. want your game to work more like a slot machine, where you know you you keep pulling the lever, and then every once in a while, randomly, you get something. <laughs> Because uh, that's sort of a better hack into our, you know, amygdala or whatever. Right. Uh, and so the idea is that with Urbit, we would be able to share text, video, images, all the things we currently share on different multiple platforms controlled by other people. On Urbit, we would be able to basically have any variety of personal interfaces designed to our liking on our own computers. Um, and we could all do that separately to our likings. Yeah. Right. right. And there's no one there's no one in between you and and that right there's no one um there's no one who kind of needs to squeeze money out of you in order to make that work or there are really there's you know you still have somebody has to route the packets and you actually just pay them pay them directly you pay the star so yeah paying you because you're routing my packets right how much do planets and stars go for right now i don't think i can say that oh that's not a public fact no, I don't think so. It's also we're not uh, we're not selling any at the moment. Oh, 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 so are there only like periodic moments where they go up for sale? Yeah. Okay. Is there another one coming up? I, th- I think someone asked this earlier. Were you not I, allowed to say that? I'm not allowed to say. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to pry. I didn't know. But... No, it's cool. No, I'm not. Cool. So not it's to... so it's just every so often they go up for a surprise sale. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that long term, we expect that, you know, a planet, we don't know exactly what the monetary value will be, but we expect that a planet, which is personal address, will be um, pretty cheap. Uh, we expect it to be basically just slightly more money than you would expect to make by like one big round of spam. That's <laughs> okay. Right, right. It has to be more than that, but it doesn't really have to be much more than that. And uh, I mean, like anything um, digital, right, the marginal cost is, is effectively zero. <laughs> Right, right. Okay. So I have a question. The The way that identity is tracked on Urbit or through Urbit, is it – you referred to cryptography earlier in our talk. Is it – is the activity of users being basically tracked in a, in a blockchain kind of way? Like are we talking about uh, kind of irreversible public records of all activity on the network or something like that? No. Uh, so – because it's a peer-to-peer network, um, the only thing that can be tracked is the only thing that could be tracked would be, oh, uh, you know, like Ted wanted to talk to Justin, so he asked for Justin's IP address. But then, um, any packets that I send to you can only be decrypted by you. 
right. no one else can even read them. So there's there's not even a technical capability for anyone else to to track what's going on. But one of the selling points we talked about is this kind of reputation management function. How would that uh, be carried out or enforced if there's not kind of robust tracking of past activity? So you got to think about it again. There are like there are multiple layers to the system, right? So there's the there's just the packet networking layer, uh, and then there's the layer above that, which is not even really formally defined in the system. It's just the kind of social networking layer, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, and it's the difference between you know connecting to Comcast and uh, sending a message to your friends on Facebook. Um, okay. and they're, they're pretty, di- they're pretty separate layers, right? So like, uh, you know, the you know, Comcast is going to kick you off if they, if you're just filling the tubes with packets, right? You're like physically right. sending way too many bits, right? Then they'll, they'll do something about that. Mm-hmm. Facebook doesn't really have that kind of, well, Facebook actually have that kind of filter because the, in addition, um, uh, because they don't have, um, uh, because they don't have good protection against civil attacks either. Um, so they have to sort of build in their own protection against civil attacks at a higher level. But with everybody, you wouldn't have to do that because the lower levels will actually handle the civil attacks for the most part. Um, and then uh, the, but within any Facebook group, you know, you, or any kind of, any kind of social network, there's going to be some kind of moderation, right? Some kind of, you know, every kind of, social group has their own social norms and uh, you know, they'll want to make it so that the people in their group are respecting their social norms. Um, And uh, so, yeah, so there are, you know, you can create a social network in orbit, just essentially like a a chat circle, you know, chat room type thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're, we're still working on exactly what that looks like. And it's also the kind of thing that, um, it's a pretty, it's a relatively thin layer uh, to build that on top of just the urbit networking in general. Like you don't have to build that much to get like a, a chat room out of the basic urbit networking. Um, okay. but the, uh, but yeah, each one of those will want to do its own kind of moderation and those, those vary widely, right? Like, okay. So that's where the expectation of kind of more robust reputation management systems that, that would be built up separately and uh, in different ways on, on different, uh, use cases. That wouldn't be something being done in the background, uh, by Urbit or something like that. Yeah. And then you could imagine that, and and you could imagine that there are sort of um, that various kind of organic reputation management systems arise, um, and so and they might be sort of per application or per service, right? I mean, uh, you know, maybe you have maybe you have a you know a good reputation on the you know the equivalent of like a jokes subreddit and a bad reputation on the equivalent of Uber, you know. <laughs> Okay, interesting. Right. So the, those things might maybe they shouldn't be related, you know. So the reputation uh, issue really just comes in due to the fact of the the way the 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 person's identity is linked to the computer, and the computer's identity is right. just a, the computer's identity is just a little bit more kind of hard coded than it is currently with IP addresses. Yeah, and it's more permanent. More permanent. Um, okay. Yeah, so hard coded. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you're you're. A, your identity and your reputation are more permanent. Um, 
so it's it's a little bit more like more like real life where those things actually are pretty permanent you know what if you buy a star and then the computer crashes or something like that like that's not a problem is it if, the, if like you lose a particular computer and you have to restart on a new computer uh so yeah i mean you actually you asked about that's a good question you asked about um uh like whether everything's sort of tracked through a blockchain or something like that yeah user activity like anything that happens within urbit is not tracked on anything uh, and there's no blockchain inside of urbit um urbit's actually older than bitcoin um but the um but we do or we will soon uh use um use ethereum to to maintain the ledger of who owns what so the the ownership records of who owns um a star who owns a galaxy who owns a personal address and who in the sense of an ethereum which ethereum address so still not directly connected to anyone's real name necessarily um but the uh that record of who owns what is maintained on ethereum uh, mm-hmm. and that's also where the uh or will be very soon so and that's also where the uh um the 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 public keys of your urbit those to the the public keys that people know so like uh within urbit networking those the public key of your urbit that that you use to send messages uh to other urbits or mm-hmm. really that you use to receive messages from other urbits um that public key is listed on ethereum uh okay. so it's it's known right. um uh are you using Ethereum as one possible example, or are you saying that Urbit has this kind of relationship with Ethereum? Well, uh, that that is the relationship that Urbit has uh, with Ethereum primarily. So Urbit is being developed kind of with and on Ethereum in some sense? It it integrates with Ethereum, and okay. it, uses, it uses Ethereum for maintaining what's called the PKI, the public key infrastructure, or it will very soon. And it'll also use it to uh, enforce the Urbit constitution. Uh, oh, so that, yeah, because the network um, is going to govern itself, um, uh, and the yes, yeah, so the galaxies uh, can vote um, on a constitution, and the way they do that is actually using Ethereum to do that. Okay, uh, so fast. we're going to launch that for relatively soon. Yeah. Okay, that, that's uh, yeah, that's interesting. Contracts are open source. You can you can view them on GitHub. The um, the Urbit Constitution and uh, Ledger. Those contracts are all you can you can look at them. That's interesting. So basically, the kinds of commitments that Urbit is making to uh, about its plans and its enterprise, that's kind of um, that that's more credible in a sense because it's 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 uh, being enforced kind of on the blockchain. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's not just like some it won't or it will no longer be just, you know, some obscure company in San Francisco holding on to the record of who bought what in some sort of bespoke database. It's like, no, it'll be a matter of public record. Um, OK, fascinating. Uh, yeah. yeah. And if you there'll be some there's some there's some limitations on um, which addresses are transferable when and which addresses can be launched when and that sort of thing. But that are enforced by that Ethereum contract. But it'll be possible to transfer. uh you know, to sell off uh, addresses um, under certain circumstances through Ethereum. What do you think will be the next kind of milestone of Urbit's, um, you know, 
uh, accessibility? Like what, what do you see coming down the pike? If you could give any kind of, uh, information or even just your, your own hunches or your personal, your personal preferences or hopes or wishes or whatever, like what's something coming down the pike, um, with maybe like a rough time frame that people might look forward to as, as a milestone for Urbit being more, um, interesting and, and immediately attractive to, to normal people. Yeah. Uh, sometime in the next year or so, um, you should see a, a revamp of the user interface. Uh, so, um, you can connect to, you can connect to Urbit, um, through a web browser. Um, and, um, the, uh, the way that works right now is a little clunky and not very fully featured. Um, but, uh, you expect, you know, within a year or so you should expect, um, a new version of that that's actually much more usable uh, and um, should be like relatively smooth. Uh, I think there'll be an iPhone app that goes along with that. Interesting. But, um, and uh, so that y- you should sort of be able to, you know, at least, uh, you know, chat with your friends over a bit more easily. That's um, interesting. And, like share files and that kind of stuff. And what about even right now, like for someone who is, uh, you know, not an especially expert programmer or hacker or, or whatever, but, you know, someone who's like basically familiar with uh, doing stuff on the command line and, you know, knows how to run scripts and stuff here and there. Is there is there cool stuff that you can do with Urbit um, kind of right now that, at that kind of level of expertise that people don't really know about? Or is there is it just not really ready for even that type of user? I mean, we really don't we really don't encourage people to use it at the moment. Okay. But um, the you can chat. Uh, which is which can be fun, uh, and then if you're yeah, and if you're interested in you know uh, learning more about the system technically or learning programming, uh, you know it's it's actually a pretty interesting way to learn programming. Um, I've known a few people who kind of uh, learned Urbit programming first, and uh, it's a very different feel from from other other kinds of programming uh, because but, hmm. yeah, just because of the way the system this is it's very different technically. Okay. Uh, most other things and so it's a very different feel and it's i mean i've been working been working at Urbit for almost a year and a half now um i've been a professional programmer for about eight years and um it's actually pretty pretty nice to work in it's uh um and and i think yeah i'm pretty confident that you know 10 or 20 years from now it'll be really nice to work in interesting now but i saw in the docs like you can you can do for instance you can host a blog or something like that there yeah. are some there's some like tutorials for that sort of thing and is that um it didn't look that difficult is that something? no it's, it's not uh, i mean it's just not it's not the easiest way to do it but you can do it uh and um yeah, I mean, the other thing I should, the other disclaimer I should mention is that we haven't had a security audit done. And so okay. while the design of Urbit is, you know, the, the sort of architecture is designed to be uh, amenable to being made secure, uh, we have not <laughs> executed on that yet. Uh, and so I wouldn't put anything valuable in there. Uh, right. We, we have a big disclaimer about that on the website, too. Right. But you can use it and play around with it for sure. Uh, and it, it's fun if you're into that sort of thing. But it's definitely like a nerd nerd project. Okay, right, right. So there's this nice slogan on the website uh, or phrase, if you will, uh, that if Bitcoin is, you know, the crypto version of money and Ethereum is the crypto version of law, then Urbit is like land. It's something to that effect. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, Um, yeah. Digital land, digital real estate. (laughs) 
yeah i just thought i just thought that was kind of interesting um to put it in that sort of sequence is there anything else that's interesting about like what like how would you characterize the relationship i guess you did a little bit before but the relationship between urban and blockchain and, and and crypto generally i guess yeah um they synergize really well actually um and they're interestingly kind of uh, technically similar. So they're all uh, deterministic distributed systems. Um, and basically the difference um, between – the, the most comparable one to Urbit is Ethereum probably um, because you can run computations in Ethereum. Uh, but the difference is that Ethereum is one global computer, right? Like the way it works is that there's – so logically speaking, there's one computer total in Ethereum, mm. and then everybody just runs that same computer, and it uses the sort of Bitcoin-style consensus mechanism to make sure that everybody's agreeing on what code to run inside of that computer. Right. Um, Urbit is sort of the opposite. Urbit is uh, everybody's got their own computer, uh, and then the consensus mechanism, well, there isn't one. Uh, like, Urbit doesn't... Urbit is not a blockchain. It doesn't guarantee that any two computers have their state synchronized. Because um, you don't need it. Um, it's sort of not what it's for. You could actually build a blockchain on top of Urbit, like using Urbit's networking protocol, which I would really love to see somebody do. Um, hmm. But the... Um, uh, but in general... Um, there, there are a lot of similarities. I mean, these things are also sort of somewhat decentralized. Uh, and one of the uh, initial applications that we see Urbit being really good for is actually for managing crypto accounts. Oh, yeah. um, so, uh, because it's a you know, sort of tiny, very secure computer that also communicates over decentralized networks. Uh, and actually, we've built in – we're building a connector to the Ethereum blockchain – uh, into the system at the moment, uh, and that's for integrating with, for for our integration with Ethereum, right? Because we are using it as a ledger and as for maintaining our constitution. Um, but um, and so the way you'll actually, you know, uh, you know, if you're a galaxy, like the way you'll vote uh, on the Ethereum constitution is by you're running a command from your Urbit, and that your Urbit will talk to the Ethereum blockchain. Um, and so we're we're building in a connector at the moment. Um, and you could also just do that to communicate with arbitrary uh, other contracts on Ethereum. Uh, and then because because Urbit is a very – or <laughs> will be a very solid computer. Um, like it's, it's a little buggy right now, but the design is so, is so simple and sort of rigorous um, that – once once it's a bit more mature, it'll be a very solid way to run code. Um, it's, and it's you know, deterministic, repeatable, um, and uh, transactional. You can replicate it easily in the sense of replicating the data and maintaining, con ensuring consistency uh, and secure. And so uh, you have this very nice kind of digital home from which you can command uh, your other... Um, your other sort of digital uh, enterprises, right? If you're, you know, if you've got some Bitcoin or some Ethereum, like, you know, talking to those blockchains from Urbit makes a ton of sense. Uh, and why? Why is that better than talking to block, talking to Bitcoin and Ethereum through current technologies? Like, what makes it better? Exactly. 
Well, one one big piece of that is that um, it's just like what what client are you running? Like, how are you actually talking to this? Um, and so, or how like how are you actually talking to the blockchain? Right. Most people who have say who like say own Bitcoin, they do it through some sort of centralized service. Right. right or like or like Ethereum, like you have to use MetaMask on your Chrome browser and you have to like you have to kind of do all these weird things. Is that kind of what you're talking about or no? That too. Um, but I think there's sort of two pieces of it. Yeah. Like one is that there's this tendency for these things that can be run decentralized to like will actually go through the centralized service anyway, because right. it's hard to run decentralized stuff on the current Internet. Um, right, so, so like coin, like Coinbase or something. Yeah, right. So just people go through Coinbase, and it's like, why does Coinbase exist? That, isn't that you yeah. know, kind of contrary to the idea of how Bitcoin's supposed to work? And like, it is contrary to the way that Bitcoin's supposed to work. But you know, you, uh, there are a lot of things that you can't do if you're not running your own server. Gotcha. Right. Okay. Right? So the that you're running your own server, you can listen. Right. You can listen for events off the blockchain. Uh, right. So like with. Um, and that's that's probably more important with uh, Ethereum, um, but you know, just in general, it's like yeah, you you want to like get a notification if somebody sends you money, something like that, right? Like you have to kind of go through some sort of centralized service that's going to actually run a server for you in order to do that. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I I should have seen that to start, but that that clarifies. Um, yeah, there are a bunch of little things. There, there's like a, a ton of little details, a little little frictions with the way that we use computers these days that stem from the fact that our computers are overgrown modems, right? We're like, we're, our computers are clients that connect in to somebody else who has to actually run sort of effectively like a real computer, like a, a computer that can actually receive requests from other computers, from other people. Like your laptop can't receive requests. All it can do is send requests out, really. Like it can't, it's not always on. And it's not all, people don't always know where to find it. Right, right. It's not how it works. And so you have to have some server that's out in the sort of public internet uh, to listen for things. And there's this whole slew of problems that come from not being able to do that yourself. Right. Okay. All the things you can do yourself with Urban. That that makes total sense. So this is actually a nice segue into maybe reflecting on some of the political implications because, you know, it, it sort of sounds like if I were to, let's say, I wanted to make a new society or something like that, right? Uh, and I wanted to design a constitution and run that through Ethereum, put that on the Ethereum blockchain, and I had a bunch of you know willing participants who wanted to join my new society. Um, and we, yeah, we developed the rules, agreed to them and, and formulated those as smart contracts on Ethereum or something like that. Um, you know, following the, the metaphor that I invoked before that's on the Urbit website, Urbit would kind of provide a, the land or the space for, uh, or could Urbit, but provide the land for, uh, kind of, uh, developing that that kind of society like are we talking about with urban are we talking about the kind of infrastructural possibilities for fundamentally new types of 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 private spaces and you know communities like is that the type of thing that we are to think of when we think of of land and 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 you know a territory are we talking about the possibility of new types of political territories i don't know i mean i i don't really know uh 
I think the short answer is like you could probably do that. Uh, it's um, I think there's it's easy to kind of conflate on the other side though I think it's easy to conflate like real world governance and digital governance. Hmm. Um, you know, like Urbit does have a constitution for doing digital governance, but it's not attempting to do meat space governance, right? We're not um, we're not trying to like you know supplant the u.s government in any form at all right like we're very much sort of like give unto caesar what is caesar's um and uh this is even reflected in our like corporate strategy i think to some extent where like there a lot of crypto companies are like you know they're out there like doing these like shell accounts in the cayman islands and all this kind of uh or switzerland or whatever no we don't do that we're like no we're a u.s company you're doing everything kind of you know We'll just like buy the book as, as best we can and like the um uh you know it's like the we're not trying to be a real world government uh at all um so i mean i guess i guess there's some sort of um i don't know if you were like a charter city or something and you wanted to like use urbit to build your government um i mean you could probably it would probably help you know, there are probably ways of, of using it for that or will be once Urbit's more mature. Um, but really, that's just because it's sort of a generic computation system and generic networking system. And so just the same way that like I think it doesn't Estonia have like an all digital government. Um, I've heard a bit about that. I don't know too much about it, though. Yeah, I think they do. I think that's like, um, yeah, like oh, you pay your taxes like digitally and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, which uh Sounds pretty nice, frankly. But the um, uh, so you know, if they wanted to, you know, if they wanted to, you know, use Urbit internally, at, just for sort of technical purposes, to solve some of their technical problems of doing that, yeah, you could. Um, uh, and I think, but you know, we're not, we're not really. That's not our, that's not our first use case. You know, we're not, we're not doing user stories around governments uh, using this, right. But I guess uh, I think that um, one thing that's sort of similar to what you're saying that is true, though, is that we do expect Urbit to be um, more of a kind of polycentric um, world where um, because we won't have these sort of big centralized giant mega corporations running uh, running the the socializing, right? I mean, that's that's such a weird thing that hmm. we kind of take for granted that, you know, whenever I just like, even this, you know, Google Hangouts here, you know, like, I just want to, I just want to chat with you. Um, but actually, you know, it's going through this, this huge corporation. Yeah. In order to do that. And, you know, they're not really censoring the video, but on Facebook, you know, they'll, they'll censor stuff. Right. Um, and the it's just it's just weird that for that you know they're they're kind of looking in they're looking in and not just censoring it but they're also reading it to try to figure out what to advertise to you um you know google reads they'll read your they'll analyze your emails to figure out what to sell to you right, right? and that that's a kind of um that kind of sort of privacy leakage is is very strange and it's it's something where like i think you do end up with a a more 
it, that has a sort of centralizing influence on culture in general. Right. Um, and so because Urbit is – it doesn't have that centralizing influence, we do expect that that cultures will diverge more from each other, right? They'll, they'll just have – you know, if you want to have an insular community or even just – a non-insular community, but just some new community on Urbit that's that's really yours, where you know maybe it's closed and no one else gets to see it. No, maybe no, right? Like you can do that, uh, and anybody can do that with Urbit. And so we do expect it to see this sort of uh, flowering of um, of many different communities and societies on Urbit. Um, and I think that's why that's part. That's probably why. You know, somebody might think like, oh, are you going to, you know, I don't know, go off and do something on your own with everybody. Like, yeah, you, you can do that sort of thing. It's it's not, it's just not really governmental. It's it's more just like, uh, I don't know. It's more like, um, you know, having a clubhouse or something or having a. Um, right. Know, yeah, some sure. Some private sure. spot for you and your friends, that kind of thing. Sure. Right. Like Urban is, is obviously just a kind of normal uh software enterprise it's a it's a technical innovation they're trying to build a, a technical system uh along pretty standard uh you know software engineering uh lines but it's it is kind of strange isn't it how like it seems that urban has a has something of a controversial reputation or a, even just a connotation like people uh some people have some strange thoughts or feelings about urbit I think because, you know, the founder of Urbit, Curtis Jarvin, is also known for his some of his political writings. But it's kind of interesting because what you're describing, although it has clear implications for sort of undercutting a lot of these centralized middlemen, these large corporations, it doesn't really have a particularly uh, right wing bias of any kind. It's 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 a kind of it's a technical system that encourages and perhaps enables uh, decentralized computing, but you could use it for left-wing purposes just as you could use it for right-wing purposes, potentially, right? I mean, I don't, I don't see a very clear, um, I don't see any really political bias in it or anything like that. I mean, that's, yeah, it's not what we're trying to do, right? I mean, we're, Urban is explicitly politically neutral. It's explicitly for everyone. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, um, no, we're definitely not trying to build like, you know, Gab or some kind of partisan mm-hmm. uh, social network, like not in the slightest. That's not what we're doing at all. Right. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, I mean, Curtis has opinions. So uh, some people associate his opinions with with all of um, with all of what we're trying to do. But um, most of those are actually just not relevant at all. Right. Yeah, because I mean, what, what I'm kind of thinking is like there's a longstanding kind of left wing tradition of trying to kind of engineer uh, alternative communities that function along the lines of, you know, let's say a kind of idealized dream of communism or something like that. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of very interested in the in kind of emerging 
technologies, especially around Bitcoin or something like Urbit, because to me, these all of these technologies seem to just open the the space for experimentation, for political experimentation in a left wing direction, in a right wing direction, and also interesting combinations of the two. Like a lot of what I've been putting out recently, the stuff I've been writing and thinking about is actually really trying to think about ways to engineer uh, novel combinations of kind of ideological inputs and and different types of personalities in kind of stable attractive uh you know collective equilibria like that's kind of what i'm thinking about more and more and it seems to me that these emerging technologies actually just open the space for experimentation across across the whole range so but it's odd how that gets coded today as as like reactionary like it's very odd you see this with bitcoin just like urbit i think i think urbit and bitcoin share a kind of similar problem in the in the public imagination which is um it gets it gets kind of villainized sometimes by some like paranoid academic leftists um just because in a strange way it's like anything that escapes the the clutches of kind of dominant mainstream like moral authorities is seen as um reactionary or something like that but that's very strange that's not at all obvious interesting um yeah uh no yeah you could i mean this is the thing is you you could build any kind of society that you want to on top of orbit you could build um uh yeah you could (laughs) you could build a full-on communist society you could build liquid democracy you could build other things i mean like it's a it's a generic platform and uh it's really yeah, it's really not opinionated about about how that sort of thing should go. Uh, I think, um, and yeah, we're, we're it's almost like a it's almost more like a meta governance protocol, right? Urban is much more like that. It's much more like okay, you know, uh, you know, here's this here's this substrate that's that's so flexible and universal that that people can do whatever they want to do on top of it. The other thing is, if you wanted to build a total centralized service on top of Urbit, just the way you could re you could recapitulate the the, in, the existing internet if you wanted to, right? The, just because it just because it doesn't make you do it doesn't mean you can't, right? So it's it's just sort of uh, it should be sort of strictly more, um, yeah, more flexible. Um, like you should be able to do anything that you can do with the existing internet and more. Um, and yeah, I don't know, maybe that. Um, I guess I could see how, you know, that would be sort of, we, uh, yeah. I and mean, I guess to the extent that we have an opinion, it's that it's that there should be, um, there should be many different sort of human societies, and they should all be able to flourish. Um, right. And yeah. I guess it, yeah. If we're against anything, it would be we're against, uh, you know, anyone trying to say there should only be one human society that must all work exactly the same way. Um, right. Yeah. I guess the 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 fundamental premises of something like Urbit would be uh, antagonistic towards that kind of universalistic imposition, because it does really kind of yeah. enable it enable it enables a wide variety of actors to to basically do as they please. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I'm wondering now if I've like overstated that, which I might have, but um, the, but yeah, I do think that there's, yeah, it's really this kind of like uh, polycentric or centerless is a term that Galen, our CEO, uses sometimes. Um, 
Uh, I think we, we think of like a, a well-functioning city sometimes. And actually the, the word you asked about this briefly at the beginning is like, you know, what does the word urbit means? And it comes from the Latin urbs, which means city. And that's where we get the word urban and things like that. Um, so it's, you know, urbs plus bit for computer bit. right? Oh, okay. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's based on the idea of having a digital city. Um, and, uh, you know, Galen's really into the um, writings of Christopher Alexander, who's an architect. Um, have you ever read any Alexander? Uh, no, tell me about it. I think you might be into him. Uh, it's pretty. I, I've read a little, and it's what a little I've read has been pretty interesting. Um, and he had a lot of thoughts about sort of like the difference between top-down planned cities and cities that grew organically hmm. um, in a more sort of bottom-up way. Uh, and his big critique was that when people plan cities, they plan it too hierarchically. Uh, and it ends up constricting uh, the kind of normal uh, vivacity of a city. And um, that if you look at the cities that have sort of grown organically, the different regions kind of blend into each other more. And there's less of a kind of like, this is the city center. And then everything else is sort of, you know, you know, less dense than the city center. It's much more sort of multi-centric where you have, um, you have many different areas that are uh-huh. all sort of serving different functions or serving similar functions, right? And, and these things are more kind of blended and uh, sort of, um, you know, natural seeming. Uh, and that that's a much healthier and sort of more alive way of having a society. And I think that that actually, that that matches very well with how we think about it with urban. Um, this idea of like, it's good to let, let things bloom from a, a bottom up perspective and not try to kind of overly constrain uh, these dynamics from the top down. Right. I, I have a question for you. I mean, you, you may or may not want to even talk about any of this, but I mean, I don't, I don't think this is uh, a touchy question, but um like I, I'm just trying to think about the, the there is this kind of um, I guess image that that some people on the internet have of urban as be, just because of um, uh, Curtis slash Moldbug's uh, political perspectives. Uh, some people do have this kind of image of urban as this like um, right wing project, but like talking to you and and kind of understanding better the the basic technical idea of it. It doesn't strike me as as very intrinsically right wing. Um, and so that leads me to to wonder if um, I mean, are are people who work at Herbit like generally right wing or not even? Uh, I, I mean, it's a big range. Yeah, I would imagine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's because it and I think that actually um, I think it's it's such a big range for people working there, I think, because um because the project actually is that universal right and like um oh yeah people are kind of all over the place are there people who work at urbit who are like kind of uh left-wing social justice activists uh i would say we have a couple yeah yeah um and uh yeah we have um at least one major anarcho-communist um, and then uh, the um, a whole bunch of just like totally apolitical or 
very centrist people as well. Um, right. And uh, a lot of, um, yeah, and then a couple of just sort of like, you know, I, I would say um, relatively standard San Francisco progressive people. You know? Right. Um, right. Do you do you find that the, the kind of uh, lefty social justice culture in the Bay Area is – do you have any takes on that? I mean, do you find is it do you find it as kind of uh, uh, oppressive and and widespread as some people say? Like I know you know people are talking about how uh, Peter Thiel has criticized the Bay Area and has kind of sought to escape for for these sorts of reasons. Do have you observed that type of problem, or you don't find it so onerous? I don't know. It's not really my area of expertise. <laughs> yeah, you're just you're just an engineer. You don't want to uh, wade into these. Uh, I'm not wading into that one political debates yeah that's cool fair enough and i don't and i yeah i mean i think um and and urban as a whole i think doesn't wade into that right right yeah well yeah it's interesting cool well i think this has uh definitely clarified my own understanding of of urban is there anything we haven't gone over that you think i mean are there are there questions that you often get asked about urban that uh like kind of commonly recurring misunderstandings that are worth maybe uh clarifying now that i haven't asked you uh that's a good question um actually yeah there's one which is that um it actually runs it's not vaporware this is a thing that exists it's a piece of software you can run on your computer um it runs on os 10 and when uh, os 10 and linux and um yeah uh so if you're if you're a geek you can run it um I guess also that it's, you know, we're not expecting this to become, I feel like a lot of the critiques of Urbit are, from a technical perspective, are very, like, short term. They're sort of like, oh, well, you can do, how is this any different from, uh, you know, just running a server on AWS? Or how is this any different from, like, just, just Facebook or something like that? And um, there's, there, there are short term answers to those questions, but the... I think the real answer is much more long term, which is that like we're um, we're working on a long term project to to build a computing system that we expect to outperform the current computing system sometime in the next few decades, but right. not before then. So, you know, the, I think uh, the real serious critiques of Urbit that I've seen, and there haven't been very many, unfortunately. It'd be great to see some better sort of higher quality criticism. Um, there have been a couple of good ones, but most most of it's pretty shallow. Um, yeah, the, the things to criticize really would be along the long-term architectural lines. Um, and um, so, so yeah, um, if you want to criticize Urbit, come come criticize our long-term <laughs> long-term architecture because uh, that's that's the stuff that we're really kind of trying to build and trying to get right. Um, uh, and then, yeah, I guess like. Uh, yeah, I think because we do have some federated, um, some federated hierarchy in our routing structure, that um, people sometimes assume that it's a very sort of authoritarian project, um, or otherwise sort of too hierarchical. Um, and I think that the funny thing about that is, I I actually that that hierarchy is so minimal, um, and it's just a skeleton. Um, and you know, if anything, I actually sometimes worry that you know it's kind of too too much of a free for all. You know, like it, like I basically I would worry about the opposite. I, um, so I think that I think people have the wrong idea about that. 
Um, yeah, and then also the, and I think that often comes from the mis- misconception that I mentioned earlier about um, people assuming that the social networks will be delineated along the same lines as the routing hierarchy, and it's just not the case. And so, um, okay, yeah, and right that and that, um, yeah, we're we're completely committed to being to being politically neutral. Like it's really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sort of, and culturally neutral for that matter. Right? It, we're 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 really trying to build something that's for all of humanity, um, so that people can build their own cultures, build their own societies, um, and do that fluidly and peacefully. Jacob Lyles wants to know who's your favorite guitarist. <laughs> oh, uh, I don't know why. <laughs> and it's kind of a basic answer, but uh, it's probably Jimmy Page. The um, Oh, Tony Iommi is up had- there. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, Hendrix might be the best guitarist. But your favorite, yeah, Jimmy Page. But, but my favorite is probably Jimmy Page. Um, Why is he asking that? <laughs> is that an inside joke? Oh, because he and I. Or something? Yeah. Um, well, I, I actually, I, I play guitar um, pretty seriously. and. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, I was in a band for a couple of years and um, might start a new one soon. Let's see. Uh, oh, nice. Nice. Urbit the band. Um, <laughs> cool. So, no, <laughs> we're not doing that. Um, right. There was like only, to... I think there was one other thing that um, just came to me. But, oh, right. Which is from what I was able to grok from reading the docs and stuff like that is that the Ur- Urbit in the long run, Urbit won't have that much control or power over any of this, right? Like once it's up and running, uh, if, if at the point at which Urbit gets adopt, if it were to be adopted widely and kind of replace the current infrastructure, there there really wouldn't be much kind of discretion for Urbit as a as a kind of centralized agent, right? I, I don't understand the question. Sorry, can you ask again? Um, well, I saw some kind of questions or critiques about how um, Urbit as an agent, uh, you know, as, as a kind of uh, a, a player in in the larger network. Um, may or may not have out outsized kind of control or power over over the development of things in the long run. But my understanding from what I was able to grok was, oh, as, you mean like the company behind Urban? Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, okay. Yeah, so there is a distinction that needs to be made between uh, the company behind Urban, um, because there is a you know U.S. corporation, right? That right that employs me. Um, and the other people who are working full time on the code, um, and there is a difference between that and the network itself. Uh, so for now, the company has a controlling interest uh, in the network. I think we own a little bit more than half of the addresses, something like that. Um, right. But in any case, it's it's enough that we have control over it for now, um, and that's deliberate because the network is very young and isn't. And, you know, we want Urbit to be easy to run and manage, but it's not at the moment. Right. And so, uh, but mostly just because it's kind of buggy. And the, um, you know, so we don't really want to um, sort of force other people to, like, run their own galaxies right now because uh, it's too hard. Um, and so the, uh, and that'll be the case for a while. You know, we, we want to kind of, Make sure that as we turn over control 
to the network as a whole. We we do that in a a smooth way that that doesn't that doesn't you know break stuff. Um, and honestly, we don't really know what that's going to be like. It's kind of um, I don't know if it's something that's really been done before. Um, hmm. But it's uh, but long term, I think we plan on only holding something like ten or twenty percent of the network. Uh, like definitely not a majority interest because we and we don't want we don't want the company in control of it that's not the point um right if the company were in control of it then like you know it's just it's not as valuable the network right it's the what what will make urbit the network valuable both in a sort of monetary and spiritual sense uh is the fact that it'll be run by you know the people in it um and um, not sort of controlled by any external entity, uh, right? Okay, that's that's really that's really core to the idea. So, um, yeah, I think that's another sort of uh, criticism that's kind of misplaced. Um, I mean, yeah, it's also the kind of thing where, like, yeah, I'm a little bit more worried about, you know, what if we turn it over to people too early and they don't know how to do it yet, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, and that's part of why I want to kind of do, do something like this and uh, a little bit more communication as to well, largely for like the people who are going to be involved with this. So they have a sense of you know what the ethos is and how they can go about kind of maintaining that. Right. OK. Uh, I have a question from the audience here. Is there a relationship between Urbit and uh, Tim Berners-Lee project, Tim Berner? Berner Lee's project of uh, Solid. Are you familiar with this? I'm I'm passingly familiar with Solid. Um, I think it's it's basically one of those things that's uh, trying to build a small piece of Urbit. Um, there are actually many of these. There, there are many projects that um, are sort of building something that's very similar to one of the layers of Urbit. Um. And the general difference between Urbit and any of those projects is just that we're doing the whole thing, like the the whole computing stack, hmm. um, because because of what I was explaining earlier that if you just try to replace any one piece of that stack, it's not enough. And people have tried this over and over again and still haven't managed to make the the dream of personal servers come true. I think there's some. I, I really. Uh, I really don't know much about the technical details of Solid, um, but I think my impression is that, um, like the data and the computation don't actually always live in the same place, um, and uh, that that seems like it's probably not very feasible. Um, but we'll see. I don't know. Uh, okay. There have also been uh, there have also been other like uh, attempts to build identity systems uh, using blockchain. Uh, so those are similar to to our identity system, at least somewhat. Um, but uh, yeah, so there's there's actually there's an old uh, joke which is called Greenspun's tenth rule. It's an old programming joke um, created by Philip Greenspun. Um, which is that uh, every 
sufficiently complicated program written in Fortran or C uh, includes an ad hoc, poorly specified, uh, slow and buggy version of half of Common Lisp. Okay. Uh, Common Lisp is a is one of those kind of um, monumental languages in computer science. Okay. Uh, and uh, somebody, I don't know who it was, but somebody came up with one of these for Urbit, which is that um, every sufficiently complex uh, decentralized system uh, imp- includes uh, an ad hoc, informally specified, slow, and buggy version of half of Urbit. Okay. And I have found this to be the case. Uh, you'll see, uh, which actually I think is really a very good sign about the, the technical design of Urbit, that you see individual pieces of the design uh, sort of popping up in lots of other systems. Uh, and what differentiates us really is that uh, those are integrated into a very coherent design where everything from the like low-level f- sort of functional machine code all the way up through the identity system have a very consistent feel and a very consistent design and they're all designed to work together. Um, and uh, so because of that, you get these sort of resonances in the design uh, that kind of echo at all these different layers. And that's part of how we're able to make the whole thing sort of so small and so understandable. I mean, there's a critique that Urbit's hard to understand, but I think it's really, that has to be compared against how long did it take somebody to understand all of the current computing system right right right. that makes Uh, sense to me like that makes sense to me why urbit has this kind of unique shroud of mystery around it because it it sounds like it's because you're trying to rebuild something from the fundamentals so of course that takes a little bit longer it's a little bit more abstract it's not going to you know be useful for a longer period of time uh, th- those are just kind of obvious implications of trying to redo anything from scratch. So it sounds like that's what's going on. Yeah. And I think there also have been a couple of um, uh, mistakes along the way that have made that worse than it would have had to be. Uh, so, you know, the names of some of the things internally are just, you know, there are a lot of just these kind of random four letter names and we're, we're, we're moving away from that. But, um, but yeah, I think that made it like a little bit harder to understand than it would have needed to be. Right. Well, I think the I think the whole uh, planet and star galaxy system is pretty cool. <laughs> I think that's like very evocative. I like it. <laughs> yeah, I, I like it too. Um, cool. Cool. Well, we've been talking for quite some time. I don't want to uh, overtax you. Um, I feel like we covered a lot of ground. Was there anything else you wanted to uh, get off your chest, or uh, that you think it's important for me to know, or for my audience to know, or anything? <laughs> Um, not the more of, yeah. How long, how long have you been with Herbit? Uh, almost a year and a half. Okay, nice. And you just moved to the Bay Area? No, I've been in San Francisco for, uh, almost eight years now. Oh, okay, but you moved to where you are right now, I guess? Yeah, I moved from, uh, I had a studio apartment and, um, I moved from that to this, um, to where I am right now, actually, in the roof deck of, uh, it's like, a a community sort of co-op type thing okay Uh, cool well 
Well, I'm I'm kind of looking to maybe like build my own society or government or something somewhere. So I'm. It sounds like I'll probably have to use Urbit if I'm going to do that. It w- it won't be like a reactionary uh, neo camel kind of soft court <laughs> soft court, but it'll it'll probably be more like a, a kind of aristocratic communist uh, collectively owned soft court sort of thing. So it sounds oh, like that, that, makes, that makes a ton of sense. I think that's obvious to everyone. What you mean? Yeah, it's, it's basically all worked out. I just uh, very ha- haven't really told told you all the details. Don't worry about it. Uh, sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. But but it sounds like I need it sounds like I need to learn Urbit though. So I think I think I need to uh, starting tomorrow. I'm gonna <laughs> starting tomorrow. I'm gonna begin intensive training in Urbit. <laughs> well, I'm uh, I'm down to help you uh, help you learn <laughs> help you learn it. Awesome. I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I condone your um, your your governance, but um, hey, you know, we we take all kinds. So, well, I might. I I mean, I, I'm sure you have you have much better things to do with your uh, urban skills. But I mean, maybe that's actually a, a nice way to end it briefly. Like what you know, for someone like me who's just like a whatever kind of uh, dilettante neophyte programmer or whatever. Um, like what, what, what would be like a fun kind of starter project to, if someone wanted to start kind of uh, d- playing around with her a bit? Um, uh, maybe like a personal reminder kind of thing or uh, something that'll or actually there's a chat bot program that you oh, can yeah? start from. That's kind of fun. Yeah. So you can just have a you know, program that, that listens on chat and, you know you know, filters messages and, you know, uh, maybe sends responses in certain cases. So you, you can have fun with that pretty easily without without getting too deep into the code. Wait, so I'm going to betray my ignorance at the end of this long, intelligent conversation. I'm going to betray my uh, <laughs> persi- my persistent stupidity by the following question. But uh, uh, just to, clar- to clarify that that that's not when you talk about a chat bot on Urbit that you're not talking about. It's not running in a kind of like private Urbit testing sandbox, right? Like it would go on the proper Internet as we as I would think of it. Right. So it, well, actually, so you could write a chatbot in Urbit that is a, for some other chat system potentially. We okay. have connectors to a few other, to a few systems. Um, like we have connectors for Facebook and Gmail and uh, Twitter. Um, so, so you could write a. You can write you a chatbot on Urbit that's hosted on your Urbit personal server that runs on Facebook. Yeah, you could do that. Okay. Um, it's not that user friendly, so I wouldn't recommend doing that uh, at the moment. Although that's something we're going to be working on over the next year or two is is really getting the connections, those connectors between Urbit and other systems to work a lot better. Um, but then, um, and that's basically to facilitate transition into Urbit. Uh, we don't okay. want that to be like a sharp disconnect where you have a big feeling of loss when you, you move out of your Facebook group or whatever, right? We want you, we want you to be able to... <laughs> migrate all that stuff over oh dude um, i want like a strong feeling of loss when i get off facebook that sounds great, <laughs> that sounds great. um so you but you were saying as a toy project you were saying there's a chat bot uh program yeah yeah and that's for urbit chat so you know if you get on urbit chat uh which which you can do very easily just by set by running an urbit um or relatively easily you do have to have a little bit of sort of command line experience um yeah you know to run the program but um but yeah uh yeah you can have a chatbot on our chat and uh and yeah you could create your own chat channels if you just want to talk with you know 
if you don't want to be on one of the public channels, you want to do something privately. Dude, what about um like my a few days ago, my Discord server that I run uh got shut down. Is there really? like can I, can I use Urbit to like what? solve this problem and like can I make a chat server that's like n- not going to get shut down? Yeah, if you run an Urbit server, nothing can shut you down. But in a way, is there a way to do it that like normal people can get on it easily or no? Not yet. Not really. No, you, you do have to be able to set it up and it's we you know, we envision this being like a sort of one click web download at some point but um it's not that yet and so uh so yeah if you're you know if your friends are uh if are you know willing to you know go into the terminal and run a couple lines um then uh yeah they could do it um it's also keep in mind that it's it's not secure yet um but uh, but yeah, I mean you you can run you can run a chat through Urbit and you can have it be completely like unlisted and private and encrypted. Um, and yeah, and once you do that with Urbit, there's there's nobody who can shut you down. That's that's kind of the point. Right. Yeah. Right. No, so, like definitely. this is this is actually, it's interesting. This happened to you. This is basically you're asking what's the use case for Urbit. It's that <laughs> right. You like, you want to talk with your friends on some Discord server? They exactly. shut you down. Yeah. Exactly. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it sucks because I mean I'm not even that like I'm I'm not even that controversial. I don't say that I don't say stuff that's that bad at all. And my my people who hang out with like me or whatever online, they're quite well behaved uh, people. So it was, it was quite strange. Um, I have a theory that I think someone just like I I think one of my enemies uh, kind of targeted me with like a bunch of complaints or something like that. But um, yeah, that's why that's one kind of immediate use case that I'm starting to already think about. Um, because if I want to do this kind of stuff more and kind of like main, maintain a community of other people who, you know, I'm kind of like responsible for this like community in some sense, I have to like, uh, find robust infrastructure for holding it up in a way that's not just like going to get constantly shut down. And so like, yeah, I'm quite like in on the market, if you will, for, uh, figuring out how to do that in a robust way. And I, and I would be quite willing to invest a fair, a, a lot of effort into learning, you know, stuff I don't already know. But I, yeah, I think the, the key thing at this point is it would have to be like usable by normal people. Um, yeah. So. Well, we're working on it, but it'll, it'll be it'll be a year or two, I think, before before it's something that um, you know a non nerd would be willing to put up with. Well, one person, at least one person in the audience, has uh, strongly enjoyed this with a nice super chat for fifty bucks, actually, from Brenton Milne. So. Uh, all right. I guess our oh, conversation uh, is is quite valuable to some people out there. That's really cool. Thanks, Brandon. Appreciate that. Cool. Um, yeah. Okay. Cool, man. I don't want to keep you much longer. This has been, you know, very stimulating for me and and useful. And uh, yeah, me too. You have some good questions. Oh, good. These are these are, like, these are the kind of. I think I feel like these are um yeah the, the kind of questions that people sort of should be asking about Urbit really like uh, like you know what's it good for how does it work how is it better than the existing internet yeah. Right, so. right. Oh, got got another super Fun. chat from Heinrich who says, uh, "Thanks for an interesting interview." So, um, yeah, looks like Ted uh, people are quite enthusiastic about this uh, talk we just had. So that's really cool. Well, that's great. I might have to invite you back on uh, when my aristocratic communist uh, patchwork softcore takes off um, at a later. Okay, I'll read your white paper. At a later, yeah, when the white paper is out, I'll send it to you. I might maybe at some point invite you back. I assume this is the blockchain. I assume the society you're building blockchain based. 
Oh, definitely, dude. I gotta like. I uh, next up, I'm gonna tokenize whatever that means. I'm not quite yeah. sure, but yeah, uh, definitely gotta tokenize. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so probably at a later stage, I might uh, enlist your consulting services if you're available at that time. Okay. All right. Thanks well, a lot, Ted. This well, is fun, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, me too. All right, I'll be, be in touch with you, man. Later on. All right. That was awesome. Really interesting. I feel like I genuinely understand Urbit much better now. So that's cool. What else we got in the chat here? Uh, Justin Society will have two blockchains. Wow. <laughs> I'm not greedy. I'm not greedy. Don't worry. That was cool. Um, yeah, I think it's it's got to be it's got to be interesting, but also difficult um, working for Urbit in the current kind of political environment. I was trying not to ask Ted, you know, questions that were too um, dicey or whatever. Like I'm, I'm, I'm personally quite interested in, you know, the what is the underlying relationship between the political writings of of Curtis Yarvin, aka Mencius Moldbug, and and Urbit. Um, but I think for this conversation, I wanted to kind of keep it mostly to the to the technical details and. Uh, just try to pin down a little bit better what's going on under the hood of Urbit because I think a lot of people don't understand it. I certainly don't fully understand it, but that really helped, I think. And I think that will give me more of a basis for for thinking about the the larger political implications. I mean, it, one thing that was very clear to me, and again, I didn't want to ask I didn't want to ask Ted too much about this because you know political issues are very difficult, especially when you work for a company. You know, you have to you have to understandably be very careful about how you represent things so i didn't want to put ted in the hot seat but i was kind of thinking a lot about the overlapping themes between urbit as a technical infrastructure and uh the writings of moldbug because i mean there's clearly a lot i think you know it's very easy to see um for instance how the idea of patchwork for instance moldbug's kind of vision for a uh, large space of different competing governments that are essentially private corporations, sovereign corporations that basically provide government as a as a private commercial service and do so in this very kind of um, large decentralized, potentially kind of global patchwork system, and basically do so on on a competitive basis. Um, you know, you could very clearly see that Urbit instantiates something like that in uh, a digital format i mean i think ted's right that there's there's clearly no uh particularly edgy political project uh behind or within urbit as a company but you can definitely see some strong parallels between uh the basic technical idea of urbit and Mulbug's larger politics which is definitely quite interesting I think. So that's something I'd like to uh, think more about, perhaps. Um, let's see what people are saying in the chat. There's a lot of stuff coming up that I'm missing now. Um, Mr. EV wants to know about my uh, classes or whatever you want to call them. Yeah, I, we've just started doing private seminars, basically, uh, for patrons. And that's been really fun. This was the first week that we did it. There'll be one each month. Um, and or as many as I need to do each month for small groups of about five or six, probably at least at first. 
And uh, yeah, so if you have questions about that, just shoot me a DM on Twitter or shoot me an email. You should be able to find that on my website without too much problem or by Googling it. I'm happy to talk about that. It's probably easier to do it that way than to uh, for me to go on long uh, rants about it on here. I don't want to bore people. Someone says, my society is going to have one more blockchain than JDogs. <laughs> yeah, so what? I'll just get another blockchain then. Um, people apparently in the chat know of Ted. Uh, apparently, we got a few Urbit users in the Hangouts here. Uh, people knew who he was, so that's cool. Let's see what else we have. Um, Dude, that would be sweet if we could figure out how to do live streaming over Urbit. I'm sure there's a way. I probably don't have the hacker skills, but you know, maybe, who knows? Maybe, maybe sometime, maybe sometime soon, I will become a expert Urbit hacker. We'll see. I mean, honestly, like I'm kind of at a point where I am. I mean, I'm, I'm, I do a little bit of programming. I'm not very good at anything, but. Especially if my, let's say, uh, career trajectory changes dramatically uh, sometime in the near future, as it possibly might. Um, I could very well invest hardcore into really learning way more about, you know, particular programming languages. And especially if it had a payoff in terms of like these other things I'm doing about trying to kind of cultivate a larger and more sustainable kind of personal platform and community for, yeah, I don't know, radical intellectual free speech and creativity or whatever. I would be willing to put in a lot of work to figuring out how to do that, how to, how to program that or whatever. The, the main bottleneck I think for me and what my potential use cases are the, the public accessibility. Um, but I, I mean, who knows? I mean, it once it's like any type of new technology. I mean, once the accessibility reaches a certain kind of critical threshold, and it's just barely available enough for other people to get on it in a less technical way, then yeah, I would be I would be quite keen to possibly investing more in developing the programming skills necessary to set up this cool kind of stuff. Um, unfortunately, it feels like it's just not quite there yet, but we'll see. Yeah, I know you all love my sweater. Yeah, it's cold in here. We're kind of cheap. We don't run the heat too much. So uh I just bundle up a bit. I always have ever since I lived in like the squat building I lived in in Philly. Um, someone says, read Curtis Yarvin's essay on software from Mars. I've never read it. Uh, I I think I, a few people mentioned that in the chat, but I didn't know what they were referring to about Mars. So that's cool. I would read that. What else we got? Yeah, I don't know how many times I need to tell you folks I'm not a fed. Um, it would be much easier if I was a fed. Justin, would you do a seminar on programming in R? Um, yeah, that's like the one programming language I'm pretty good at. Honestly, though, to be to be perfectly frank, I mean, I'm not. If you're like an expert R programmer, you would probably find my R code a joke. You know, as an academic. I've learned uh, kind of statistical data programming uh, well enough to be able to do to do it, to do like 
you know, I, I can do pretty sophisticated statistical modeling and R and data analysis and graphics and stuff. Um, but as a coder, uh, you know, and from a programming perspective, my code is probably terribly slow and efficient, uh, probably looks ugly. You know, so I hardly feel like I'm in a very good position to teach programming in R, even though I'm, you know, pr- you know, I, I know my way around it and can do a lot of stuff with it. Um, for applied purposes, you know, for like, you know, beginners who want to analyze social and political data, I could definitely uh, teach a lot of stuff related to uh, R. I could definitely give someone a strong education in R. I've, I've given like paid workshops on time series modeling, for instance. Uh, most of that was done in Stata, though, actually. I could just as well do it in R. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, I could do that sort of stuff. My YouTube channel actually, funny story, my YouTube channel actually started, I I, by, I threw on some videos uh uh, just on like tutorials of how to do stuff in R initially for students, like undergraduate students when I was teaching stats classes. Um, and I actually have a few videos that got a lot of, well, like one of my R instructional videos has like a hundred thousand views or something like that. It's like by far the most viewed uh, video on my whole YouTube is like some really simple, random R programming, uh, tutorial. So yeah, I could definitely do more of that. I have definitely been thinking about doing more of that, you know, especially, um, if my, uh, career trajectory changes very dramatically, uh, in the next few months or whatever, you know, one of many possible things I could do a uh, much more of is yeah, build up that whole kind of like learn how to do political data analysis and our kind of, uh, little subspace in my, in my, uh, internet properties. Cause apparently like, uh, my YouTube is already doing fairly well in that space on that, on that part of the algorithm for YouTube or whatever. So that's something I could possibly do more of. Um, I mean, if people are actually interested in that, I don't know how, I can't imagine many of you listening to these would be interested in that, but it would definitely be useful to know if you are. So definitely let me know. Um, but other than this one person whose name is unpronounceable because it's just a bunch of strings of letters. Um, I'm not sure there's too many people very interested in that. Live streaming is doable in principle, says Marco. You just have to implement the video and audio code and plug two orbits together. Oh, sounds easy. I'll do that tomorrow. Let's see what else. All right, folks. I think I think we'll we will call it a night then. So thanks for hanging out, as always. Big thanks to all my patrons. It's my my squad, my crew. Much, 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 much appreciated. I am going to be uploading actually to. So on Patreon, I have this like little thing called my hard drive. And for patrons, I kind of let people see like stuff that has been sitting on my hard drive. So I have a lot of like work that's already done, like essays and articles and all kinds of stuff that's basically not really finished and polished or I don't really know what to do. Maybe it is basically finished, but I don't know where to put it or I don't know where to submit it or post it or whatever. Uh, I just have like all the stuff on my hard drive. So part of one of my ideas for the Patreon is basically like just throw on a bunch, throw online a bunch of stuff that's pretty valuable. I think that's good stuff. It just, I haven't done anything with it yet. Might as well just share it with people. Um, so that's one thing that I give as a kind of token of appreciation for patrons. So on, yeah, on, on, on my Patreon, there's 
something I call my hard drive. And to get it started, when I first put it up last month, I just threw up a couple things. Uh, now I'm getting ready to post. I'll try to post like at least one or two like valuable things a month until my hard drive is empty. And all the good stuff sitting on my hard drive is actually on my Patreon. And uh, this month I'm going to be uploading like in the next couple of days, I'm going to put on there a, I have this like 6,000 word essay on uh, the kind of the history of information technology, specifically in kind of the early modern period. So I'm really interested in around, you know, the years from like 1200 to 1600. Um, I'm really interested in the, uh, the history of information technology uh, innovations in that time period. And I think it was about a year ago that I wrote this like long, it's basically like a journal article length uh, piece uh, kind of talking about the 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 key series of innovations, specifically related to uh, the kind of the measurement, the quantitative measurement of of reality. There were uh, I read this really good book of, about a year ago on on the history of quantification, basically. And the reason I'm really interested in that period is because this is kind of like the runway to the acceleration of of modernity. Like if modernity is this kind of you know if modernity is the inflection point where kind of the exponential takeoff uh, inflects. Like, you know, this is basically what Nick Land thinks. And um, this is what I think a lot of people thinks. But this is what a lot of people think. If that is the case, um, then I, I was for a while, I was quite interested in like what was going on in the in the couple hundred years before that inflection point. And yeah, and it's it's quite interesting to kind of look at that period as a kind of runway for the takeoff of of modernity and um yeah so i have this like six thousand word essay or article that kind of uh goes through that history and tries to uh tries to understand like what that looks like and what's happening uh so that is what i've been uh getting ready actually just today and the and the day before i'm getting that ready to post that um as i said it's like i'm gonna be posting to that like unpolished things like stuff that's just sitting on my hard drive that's good enough to share for sure that's valuable i think but um just don't know how to really frame it to put it somewhere else or i don't know exactly where to put it um so it'll be fair these things are like somewhat raw things that i am uh you know they come with the caveat that i'm not exactly sure what the value or um upshot is so some of it's kind of obscure um but yeah, that, that's a that's a good one. I think one of the many valuable things on my hard drive that is just collecting dust. So, uh, yeah. All right. So I got to go do that. Actually, I'm going to try to get that done before I go to sleep tonight. It's already. Oh, it's only nine thirty four here. I'm used to doing these streams late at night, so thought it was later. Oh, what do we got going on here? Yeah. So um, I'm going to actually try to get that done tonight, and yeah. What about you folks? Any any news, information, questions I should know before we split? <laughs> that was cool. I want to get more technical people on here. I think um, it's nice speaking with people who actually know something complicated and difficult in precise detail. Because then I'm always sure I'm gonna I'm gonna learn something that I don't already know i think other live streams i do it's just kind of for fun or you know there are different types of conversations i think there are different reasons to have conversations and those reasons can be equally worthwhile but it's nice talking with technical experts sometimes because you're kind of guaranteed to 
get a specifically kind of empirically improved understanding of something technical. So you're welcome, Father Gregory. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Good to hear. Um, I'm not on Gab, actually. I've, I have to admit, I've, I'm kind of curious about Gab just because with my experience being shut down on the Discord server. Oh, by the way, if you want to join the Discord server, I try to always say this. If you're out there and you want to join the Discord server and you're not in there already, just shoot me a DM on Twitter or send me an email and I'll hook it up. Um, I've been curious about Gab just because, you know, I know they have a bad reputation uh, to a lot of people anyway um, as just like this um, kind of like far right wing uh place where people go to i got i don't know celebrate maga or whatever uh but i don't know if it's uh i'm just curious i don't know what it's really like um gab doxes its users someone says um ev wants my clothing items uh that's a little strange uh, but okay Gab has censored stuff. Okay, so Gab is not as like radical free speech absolutist as you might think, I guess. Um, yeah, I've been thinking about signing up just to check it out, just to go on there and have a look around, see what it's like. Marco says it's like their intent is to be this First Amendment place, but it seems like they suffer from the witches not hunted here effect. Interesting. Right, right. I could imagine it's... I can imagine they 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 attract or select for strange <laughs> figures, but uh, I, I'm not judging it. I'm not prejudging it. I like I said, I'm kind of curious on. I'm I'm curious about getting on there actually and just having a look around and seeing what it's like. <laughs> I personally, I think our, my Discord server is pretty dope. I think like the the community that's emerging there has been pretty good and seems to be getting better. So, um, yeah. I'm I'm quite content, I think, with that for now as a place to chat with people. But uh, yeah, Twitter, I mean, I, it does seem like Twitter is going down the drain. I think like probably it'll get worse and worse uh, until there'll be some sort of uh, critical moment where there's mass defection to something else. I'm not sure that's going to be Gab, though. Uh, it's a good question what it will be. Yes, Marco, come on by the Discord. Say what's up. Uh, but there's a new one, you know, so just keep that in mind. Let me know if you need invite. Someone says the only thing they had going for them was the free speech absolutism, but they don't even subscribe to that in practice anymore. So it's definitely an eco chamber. Yeah, Urban seems cool, man. I feel like I'm I feel like I'm I'm now like kind of a, a Urban booster. It sounds like I would like. It sounds pretty good. Like, it sounds like I would like for it to succeed and I would like for it to succeed sooner than later. Um, it sounds pretty attractive to, you know, like what Ted was describing. I kind of wish I could get up on that sooner in a, in a, you know, easier way. Yeah. If I could be convinced of like some kind of, uh, rewarding, uh, yeah, some reward from, doing it I, I i would definitely buckle down and see if i could learn my way around urban i just want to be able to do actually cool stuff concretely with people so yeah i don't want to just like do that as a hobby uh, all right folks this is where we part ways for the evening thank you for hanging out as always it's been fun and uh as i said i think the last time i'm currently 
spending a lot of time sending out emails right now. So um, I'm quite confident that we will have some killer guests uh, even more over the next few weeks and months because uh, I'm I'm putting out a lot of emails. So even if some of them are too good for me or think they're too cool for me or think I'm too problematic or whatever the case might be, we'll get some good people for sure, no doubt. We're going to have Reza Negarastani uh, sometime in the next few weeks. That'll be exciting. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure we got some other cool people coming up. I'll keep you posted. But uh, yeah, thanks everyone. Take it easy. I wish you all the best. (laughs) 